from the heart of Dubai, where tomorrow is being built today to the world. Welcome to the CTO Show with Mehmet. Here, we redefine technology and reimagine possibilities. With Mehmet, delve into the riveting realms of AI, cybersecurity, and digital technology. Experience the thrilling highs and lows of startups. Immerse yourself in the spirit of entrepreneurship and witness the future of business innovation being written in real time. Now, without further ado, let's tune in and explore the future. Hello and welcome back to a new episode of the CTO Show. Today, I'm very pleased to join me from Lithuania, Donatas. Donatas, thank you very much for joining me. The way I like to do it, I keep it for my guests to introduce themselves and what they do. So the floor is yours. Oh, thank you, Mehmet. It's really great pleasure and great honor to be here. I'm actually a startup marketing advisor. At least this this was the way I I was you know introducing myself. But actually, I've written the book. I published the book that became one of top five selling books on Amazon. Start Evolution Curve. It stayed in charts in top five charts for almost four months. And the fun fact that even uh, California State University used this book as the course book for MBA students teaching new subject technology and startups. Eventually, after publishing that book, I decided, well, why not to create the course? So I created the course and published it on Udemy so that it's accessible to as more as possible startup founders. I don't recall, so it gets right now about 16 or 17,000 entrepreneurs enrolled in the course. And globalgurus.org um, ranked this course as the number four best program in the world for startups in 2022. So that's, that's who am I? And now, now actually I'm mostly focused on working with SaaS startups and online platform startups. I created the double sprint method to help early stage SaaS and platform founders to validate their idea and to get customers even before writing a single line of code. For some people, it might sound like a controversial thing, but actually this is what we do on a daily basis. That's, that's probably why I ended up here being with Mehmet on this podcast. hundred percent. This is, you know, why I wanted you to do that to share a little bit of your wisdom, I would say. But, you know, something I like to ask uh, out of curiosity. Um, so what, what? interested you in in the world of startups like coming from you know you had a phd in economics right and uh, so what attracted you to the startup world okay as as like discussing the fact of the phd i was never very deep into economics it was not in my blood but marketing was in my blood i hold masters in marketing and there was just a chance to study a phd in economics i just took it and okay that's cool but i'm using our phd knowledge of economics in Marketing. I try to measure everything and everywhere. And sometimes people say, well, you are getting over obsessed with metrics and <laughs> analyzing everything. But why I went into startups, it was because three our traditional business clients who tried to build something innovative, something, something crazy, told me that the more idea is innovative, the more idea is crazy, you guys, and especially you, Donatas, deliver us the, the most possible value. Because if you want to build another one restaurant or another one construction company, you look older, they did, you know, five restaurants in a row and successful, you go to them and, and you will do that. But if you want to create something that was never done before, so what the heck you should do? Where should you look for? So you need to recreate everything from scratch. And this is where the others, you are very, very helpful and useful for us. And that, I'm in marketing for almost 20 years. And that, at that time, I didn't even consider that these companies, innovative companies were called startups. This was like the initial touch point. Okay, so I want to dive deeper into these innovative, strange, and traditional, unorthodox businesses. So let's dive deeper into that. And that's how I ended up in the startup world. But the fun fact, uh, I was not very successful at the very beginning with startups. Actually, I, I tried to create my own startup. At that time, I didn't call it a startup. It was like medical tourism um, platform. Like mm -hmm. how to attract potential medical tourists to our country, how to serve them, how to sell medical services to foreigners. That sounds kind of cool. We got some kind of idea validation, but eventually it flopped. And that was like the key fact that made me to go very, very deep into startups, how to validate the idea, how it, how marketing actually works with startups. And I noticed that, well, 
even if you have 10 years of experience in marketing with traditional businesses, it doesn't mean a lot when you're working with startups because it's, it's totally different game, like volleyball and basketball. Everyone is using the ball, but the ball is different. Rules are different and gosh, so what game are you playing? So that's when I decided to go dive, to dive deeper into startups and uh, that's that, that what got me interested in that when it's very strange and there is no like pre-built solutions. Great. So let's start from something you mentioned during your introduction. So let's start with, should we start with the, the, the book or should we start with the double sprint? Which one would make more sense? Uh, it, it probably depends on who your target audience is, who are most, who are those listeners of, of, of your podcast. If they are like startup founders in general, well, we can, we can speak about the book, but if you are more in tech in like software and platforms, uh, online tools, maybe double sprint method would be more interesting for them. Let's start because I have a mixed audience. So let's start with the book, you know, at least, you know, what, uh, let's say the motive behind it and you know, the you know main highlight that you can tell us about it. okay the main motive it was uh it's more than 1000 startup experience collected in the book so why to learn from your own mistakes when it's very expensive yeah you, mm -hmm. you can learn a lot from your own mistakes but you can learn from somebody else's mistakes and achievements so why not to do that and in order to write the book, I did the research. I surveyed 1,447 startups and more than 1,000 of them were viable startups and so-called scalable startups. It means like true startups, not like a lifestyle, lifestyle startups, but true startups that can, you know, aim for yeah. an exit. Why I have published this book, why, it's, why I try to get this much of experience from other startup founders, because first of all, I tried to validate the idea of the book in front of the audience. I was invited to give a speech for startups. It was about maybe two, 300 startups. They were preparing for pitch competition the next day. So I provided them some, some training. And at the end I showed, well, this and much more things you could get in the book. I showed them the 3D mock-up of the book. I showed them that uh, the table of contents of the book and few people of the audience, they even asked, okay, where can we buy? Can we order it already? Okay, this is cool. This is like the validation of the idea that this book is needed. The concept is needed. That's cool. Later on, I even measured how many there were downloads of these templates. Because after the end of my lecture, I shared uh, the link and said, well, if you want to get this book and you can also get all these templates that we talked together, go and download it. And I saw that more than 25% who were in the room, they actually made some downloads from, from that. But the key insight from there was that there was one guy sitting somewhere at the back of the audience, you know, this kind of like super, super pessimistic person. Why should we believe in you? There are a lot of books on startups. There are a lot of theories on startups. So how do you build a startup? What kind of startup you build? And you know, all that kind of negativity going on, going on. At that time I was, gosh, this person is negative. So come on, I'm like a PhD candidate and whatever. So I will write really credible book and et cetera, et cetera. But then I got myself, well, uh, this is probably my ego speaking. And okay, after the, co uh, after the lecture, we had a coffee break and they met this person uh, with a cup of coffee and said, okay, they tell me what exactly do you want from me to make this book a no-brainer for you? Why this should be like a must-read book for you? He, he then made some excuses. Okay, I didn't want to offend you. That's totally fine. Okay, but you know, I'm very skeptical. Like, he actually tried to build two or three startups. He burned out. <laughs> You don't believe, you know, all those fake, you know, promises. And at that time I said, okay, if I build you like the exact startup that you're building right now, it would be like a good book for you. Yeah. But you understand that it's impossible because if I build a startup that, that you are willing to build, come on, this is, this is not nonsense at all. So what should I do? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. So I got a little bit kind of like an angry at that moment. And they said, okay, what if I would give you an experience of one thousand startups in that book, if I would pack it in, would it be valuable for you or not? So he said, yeah, at least few of these startups would resonate with my situation, with my challenges and that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. That sounds good. That time I was driving from, uh, from, from that event to my home, more than 300 kilometers and thinking, oh gosh, what have I done? Now I need to find 1000 startups. 
I knew maybe 10 startups, you know, at, at, at maximum. So where should I find 990 additional startups? <laughs> but that's how the journey of the research for the book started. So, so that's it. And, and I was digging deeper with those startups. If you failed, so why did you fail? What was the reason? You know, what was your mindset? What were techniques you used and et cetera, et cetera. And if you succeeded, what tools, methods you used and what would you use repeatedly if you're building, you know, another one startup and which of these methods you wouldn't use. So I collected the set of tools, put them in five stages of startup evolution curve. If you are like in the first stage and just in the analysis state, you don't need even to go outside the building and talk to customers. You need just get like secondary data and just to make some assumptions, whether it makes sense or not to pursue that direction and so on. And there are other stages, other methods, but 35 lessons packed into that book for startup founders. That's very cool. Now let's come to the double split method, which is, I understood it's also like the cornerstone for, you know, your advisory work. Can, can you explain it on a, you know, also to us on a high level and tell us what it involves? Yeah. If, if in a nutshell, most developers know working in sprints, you, even UX designers and startups, yeah, we need to work in sprints. And I suggest working in double sprints. So what the hell does it mean? <laughs> you know, two times more work or what? I say that we are standing on two feet, not just on one foot today. Right? And, and we need to take um, two sides of the double sprint like method. The first side is obviously developing the product. You know, you need to do the UX, wireframing, all that kind of stuff. That actual product exists that you can sell it. But on the other hand, you need to develop the business. You need to develop the customer. You need to go outside and find that customer who, are, who is willing actually to pay or at least to commit paying you once the solution is available. So it means that simultaneously, you are developing the product step-by-step step on one side and building the waiting list of customers on the other side. And while you are building the waiting list of customers, you can build your early, your early adopters program. You can build, build your customer's advisory board of five to 10 customers who will advise you how to develop the product. And you can turn to them and say, hey guys, there are 10 features that we are like willing to build and we hear from the market that these features are essential, but we won't release them uh, until the end of the year or whatever it is. So which of those features, top three, would be the best pick? And you don't make the decision, you ask your customers and okay, would you pay for these three features instead of you know, waiting for a year? That's, that's how you date. And each, each circle, each side of the double sprint method has 10 steps and you need to delete all of these steps, you know, one by one. And eventually you will come back, come down from initial idea of you want, you want to build to a market proven product specification. At that time, you will have the waiting list of potential customers and maybe some commitment in terms of money, time, or reputation from customers. And you will have the tech specification so that you could handle it to developers and say, hey, this is what I want to build. And, um, you know, how much it will cost me? When, when can you do it? And that's it. And once it's done, you only have the list of customers who are waiting for that product. That's, that's what the double sprint is in a nutshell. So basically, it's part of the validation, right, Donatas? Yep. Yep. Exactly. It's validation and improvement of the product on the go. It's not just like, I have amazing idea. Now let's get and check it. Uh, oops, it's wrong. No. Why it's wrong. How to make it, uh, how to make it a no brainer for the audience. You improve it. You get back to the product and what I do, like, um, I never start working with a customer until we do the double sprint audit. Like we take this diagram and diagnose their situation. And I pinpoint where are like critical areas based on my experience, based on that method, where I would focus on. And only after that, we can jump in and start, you know, diagnosing what needs to be done to fix the situation, to move on forward. And what I very, very often see that product development is far, far away, but customer development, in the best case, um, founders have done some discovery interviews some initial idea validation, but their product development has already gone too far from that initial idea validation and, and they didn't touch the base with customers if they are building the right thing and if customers are willing to commit monetary, uh, monetary obligations to that. Right. Right. Now, uh, let me be a little bit uh, 
like the friend you just described a while ago, like the skeptical guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm asking this because I know like some, some of the, um, you know, just might have this, um, you know, I, because I get it a lot. Hey, I don't want to mention exactly why I'm building because I'm bringing something completely new to the market, right? Mm-hmm. So you, we hear, we hear this from some founders, you know, part of why my world also as well, I, I like to, to try to help these founders in other things. So, uh, how this applies and, uh, I would say, should they really have this mentality, oh, like I'm bringing some innovation. I cannot even now show it to, to them. Like, um, what, what you tell yeah. me, you know? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I see the point. Such for, uh, yeah. For me, it's like a good sign because I meet less and less people who think in that way. Previously, I met a lot of people who were thinking, no, I'm genius. I'm Albert Einstein. I, I've invented something that, wow, this is, this is amazing. But my question is, uh, if this idea is so unique, how do you know that market needs it? Just, just think about that. If no one else has built it before, what proof do you have that it needs to be in the market, that people are ready, willing, and able to pay money for that? So it's either one of two, either you are genius like Albert Einstein and you created something innovative. That's cool. I don't neglect. This is possible. Yeah, that's cool. But 99.9%, we are not Albert Einsteins. And uh, the case is that maybe market simply doesn't need that. For us, it seems like really valuable thing. And I had like personal experience with one founder coming to me when he has already invested more than 240,000 euros in building the platform for B2B customers, like a marketplace, like a platform based on his personal experience. He actually sold 50% of the shares that he owned in the traditional business in the construction industry. And he invested almost all of that amount into building that startup without any idea validation because he was so cautious. No, no, no. I don't want to tell anyone until it's ready. But when it's ready, that it, it will be amazing. And he built uh, only based on his own assumptions, on his own experience, even though he had more than 20 years of experience in that niche, but he failed miserably. So out of that uh, 240,000 euros spent, he didn't get even a single euro back. He got maybe 160 registered users, but not paying customers. Right, right. Now, how this aligned Donatus with, you know, the concept is not new, but I mean, uh, this aligns this methodology of what's called building in public, right? So now we are seeing more people, more entrepreneurs, and sometimes even solopreneurs, they do building in public. And I follow them and I see, you know, like these guys, you know, sometimes it's a one-man show and they are getting really cool, um, you know, feedback from, from you know, the community, whether they're followers on social media or whatever. So uh, does it align with that, you know, concept of, building in public a little bit? Um, what I suggest and what we do in the double sprint method, we actually address both of these sides. Yeah, I have something innovative. I don't want to give away to my competitors. Sometimes it's actually a good, uh, a good thing that founder is aware of specific competitors in the market. So if I give away this idea, other competitors, they have deeper pockets in the market. They are looking for competitive edge and I have this edge in my mind. I've been in the industry. I know that kind of stuff and they can copy me, implement their own solution. And everybody in the market will think that they were those genius who created that stuff, that improvement. I'm not afraid that, come on, somebody will steal my idea, but I know two or three players in the market who actually can benefit from that. And in this case, yep, it makes sense not to showcase everything in front. Like uh, I wouldn't be like, well, 100% 100% you know, transparent of what we are building. So what we do in the double sprint method is that we are approaching customers and asking about the problem. So what do you want to solve and what the result you want to get? We are talking about what, but not how. Publicly, we are re- we revealing what we are building, but not how we are building, how we are different, how we are efficient, how we are competitively stronger than anyone in the market. So you can publicly show, yeah, this is like our public roadmap, but this is our <laughs> private roadmap where you build all these kind of like uh, things that will give you unfair competitive advantage. And if you don't have unfair competitive advantage and the only advantage is that nobody else knows your idea, you are already in the trouble. Right. 
because any time uh, you will find the guy, the company who has deeper pockets and they simply copy you. That's, that's it. And another thing what we do in the double sprint is that we try to build early adopters program, which means that we show to our early adopters the way more than publicly. So publicly, we can create just a landing page that, hey, if you are like our ICP, ideal customer profile, have this specific problem and you're looking for some kind of like the solution or result, uh, enroll, have a call with us. And it's a, that's it, what they know about what we are building if we are like in kind of stealth mode. But when we talk with potential early adopters, we can measure the temperature of their involvement and we can do some kind of like a due diligence. If this is our direct competitor, okay, sorry, we're not interested. If it's not a direct competitor, cool, we can accept you in our early adopters program. You have to pay something to get access to the program, to get early access to the tool, to test it, to co-create with us and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe this would be a paid pilot. And what it means that we collect like five, 10 customers, if we are talking in B2B, like uh, businesses who have much more information than anyone in public could understand about what we are building. And this is where we get that specific feedback. What's in it if everybody in the market knows what you are building? Will you get feedback from, from them? Mostly you will get feedback from critics and tire kickers. But if you have early adopters who have their skin in the game, already invested their time and money, they will want to, that you will build that damn good solution for them because they already invested money and they want to get really great solution for that. And they will give you like that feedback that is implementable and helps you building better product. Right. So the next question would be where I can find these early adopters. Oh, nice. Nice. This is nice. <laughs> There are a few different channels, but first of all, you need to think about what, what will you offer for them? That's the tricky thing because you can find like the, the place, the space where they hang around, but what you're going to do, like if they are on Reddit, on Facebook group, or on LinkedIn group, Hey, buy my stuff or enroll in my program. That doesn't work anymore because there are too many, like kind of like spammers or like I'm building this, building that, building that, that doesn't work. So the first step is to find where they actually hang around. That's the right question. And this is like different from case to case. The second question, which I would even put in the first place, what's in it for them? How would you get their attention? And this question, we could even split into two, uh, you know, minor questions. Like the one would be like, what's your big marketing idea? What's like the catchy headline, but not like the bold statement that is unbelievable. No, this is the big idea, the game changer, which is usually based on some macro trends happening in the industry. And you showcase that, well, this is the window of opportunity based on these micro trends. And you are building the tool that will allow you to, uh, to use that opportunity of window. And now the call to action, jump in and get to it. And this is the second part of the question. So what will you get if you jump in? Okay. You will get on the call with me. So what's in it for you? We'll sign up for the waiting lists. Okay. So what's in it for you? What was what there? So for instance, one startup founder on our, uh, double spring 90 day bootcamp is building them the tools for uh, managing OKRs, objective key results methodology. So for early adopters, he offers one-on-one -on -one sessions, and this is a tremendous value. So if you are a scale up and you're trying to grow from the team of five people to 50 people from 100 K to 1 million ARR. This is totally different leagues of, of where, where are you playing the game? And, um, this founder introduces not just the tool, but first of all, he has like the coaching session. Okay. What are your goals? How, oh, how quickly are you predicting your growth and et cetera, et cetera. He helps them to set up these goals. He gives them like 30 days access to the tool, to track, to measure everything. And if he sees that it's a good fit. He offers them an early adopters program. Either it's like a fixed fee or a monthly fee, it depends like on, on the stage when you're joining, but this is a very clear value for them. And this founder is really a tough guy because he managed to get from X employees to Y employees from, you know, 100 K to few million. And if you want to do the same, to do the same, why not to talk with this guy? Right now, something also you mentioned at the beginning. Now it's all about, uh, part of the validation. You mentioned about researching customers and you said, uh, you know, you can do this without going out of the room. 
like this this phrase caught my attention and I want you to also explain it a little bit more. Yep, yep, yep. You won't get 100% validation or, uh, of the idea without going outside the room and, and talking to people, but you can get 100% rejection of your idea without going outside the room. That's pretty obvious. Like uh, you, you use definitely secondary data. Uh, now with current tools, with AI tools that can help you to boost your search speed, you know, how to say that politely, you, know, you would be a lazy person if you wouldn't do the initial analysis before talking to anyone. So when you go outside the building and try to talk to potential customers, you already have, uh, have uh, to do your homework before doing that, actually, so that you know, well, it makes sense now I need just to put the dots on I and that's it. So for instance, one example was like, uh, startup was pitching an idea for the jury and to get some kind of like funding and the prize and et cetera. And this is innovative. This is crazy. We talk to customers. They say they would pay, they would buy. How many customers do you have? None, but they will buy once we build it. Mm -hmm. Where did I hear that story? And one of the jury members took his iPhone, I believe, and he simply searched and he found like five or six uh, sellers on Alibaba <laughs> shopping that kind of innovative stuff. And he said, this is a new thing for us. The founder even didn't knew that the same product is already available and mass produced in China. So why, why are you going to talk to, to talk to people without doing that secondary data research? If you have done that, like this is like the first step of validation. Cool. It, it makes sense. Then you do the competitor research. If there is like, if there is the demand in the market, that's great. But what's the supply? And can you find the niche? Can you find the difference? You have your hypothesis on the niche. This is how we're going to be different. This is who we're going to serve. And this is what kind of value we're going to provide for them. Now let's go and talk to those people who we desire to serve and tell them about the value that we intend to create. And you get their feedback. Donatas, this is bullshit. We don't need that. Okay, I got it. I will talk to a few other people if they tell me the same thing. Sorry, my conclusions were wrong. But if I get the confirmation, okay, these kind of people, ICP ideal customer profile, they, they are ready to get this value from me for, well, this specific like payment price or whatever it is. But again, if we are talking about price, saying is not the same as paying. Interviews won't validate your pricing. So the least thing what we did during discovery interviews is we asked them, what would be the most fair way uh, to charge for this? So you see, you have this problem. We have the solution. We have no clue like how to charge for it, how much it will cost or whatever it is. So Mehmet, what would be the most best way to charge for it? And we simply wait for, from the customer. And customers, okay, based on, you know, how much it costs me right now, based on what would I get? Okay, cool. We are getting to some numbers and to even specific pricing models based on mm. either it's like usage, based on value delivered, based on time on whatever. Right. So, so Donatas, like all this is part, you know, of validation and the ultimate goal is to reach what we call the product market fit, right? Yep. So you mentioned a couple of examples, but you know, and you'd experience that because, you know, you work with a lot of startups and you studied a lot of stuff. Maybe I will be, <laughs> I know like the answer is that some of the mistakes maybe still happen now, but what are the most common ones uh, that you, you see them? keep repeating it and how they can avoid that. Building too robust product without validation in monetary form. Like they got initial validation. Yeah, this is good. This is great. And they try to build super trooper product with, you know, polished version of the product without having a clue if somebody will pay for that. They believe that they will pay, but most likely it's not going to happen. In most of the cases, it's, it, it doesn't happen. The next thing is that you build too features that are nice to have and you need to ask customers well we have the list of 10 features you need to pick on three or five whatever so which which one of those you will pick we need to prioritize these things another another issue is that they think okay if i build the product if it if the value is really great it will be very easy to get customers you are only partly right your product must be valuable enough for customers to get interested in that but now we get, we as users, as customers, we are getting so many messages all over the place. 
So that your message needs to be sharp. It needs to be specific. And what we train, you, you need to build like kind of like a big marketing idea that it's different from the market, that you interrupt pattern. But if you believe that you will build the product and then send mass emails announcing, ta-da, now go and buy my stuff, it ain't gonna work. Or we think that, okay, we will publish on Facebook or on LinkedIn and everybody will enroll. Or we will call DM on LinkedIn, decision maker, CEOs of companies, and they will purchase our solution. It ain't gonna happen. Maybe one or two, but it will be like exception from the rule, not, not the rule itself. So you need to, you need to have your channels. You need to have your message in it. And what I also usually see that founders skip that step that you, you need. Well, it's very advisable. It's not that it's a must, but it's very advisable to have customer advisory board. Because if mm -hmm. you have customer advisory board, everything else, you know, comes a lot easier because you can consult with customer advisory board. Okay, wh where do you hang around, guys? Could you refer me three or five other businesses who might benefit from that solution? Okay, cool. Could I get your testimonial? What did you find most va valuable about our software or, or platform? Cool. What was the aha moment when you, when you made that decision? This is the thing that will change, you know, our game or whatever it is. You get all of that from your early adopters program members, and then you can translate that into the market, into your marketing message and get even more customers. So this is another one mistake that you don't build customer advisory board. Another mistake is like on, on the other side, very controversial, like they try too hard selling initially. And th then they say, well, it doesn't work. You just built the MVP or just made the sketch or wireframe go and try to sell. Well, we will build this amazing cybersecurity solution and we will conquer the IBM, <laughs> whatever kind of, you know, that stuff. We will be much better. Now pay us 100K for that solution. Uh, nobody pays us, you know, this approach doesn't work and meh, it's, it's not good. That's not the way it works out. First of all, you do these discovery interviews. Okay, you are our ideal customer and we are creating you this kind of out. Does it make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, uh, what would be the first way to charge for that? Okay, cool. What we need to add on it so it's a no brainer. Okay, cool. Would you be willing to test it out, to try it out and give us feedback once we have like a wireframe or like a clickable mockup or whatever? Okay, yeah, and you go with, like you increase the temperature of the customer until a certain level when you say, well, we have our early adopters program. Would you like to join it? And here are exclusive conditions for that. Instead of, you know, paying X amount per year, you can get like a lifetime license for a lump sum money or maybe a discounted annual plan for as many years as you want or whatever other conditions. We can also include number of uh, development hours so that we can, you know, adjust, customize the solution to your business needs. We can add additional training, additional, you know, bonuses. So it's a no brainer. And then we do the pre-sale. It's not the way just I created the mock-up. I tried to book like a sales call with, with the founder, with the CEO of the company that they see for the first time and tried to sell him. And then I say, well, it doesn't work. No, we built the relationship. We measure temperature. And when it's like hot enough, we sell well. Would it make sense for you to join the program? That's that's it. And another one uh, challenge and problem is that most founders aren't aware that market is segmented in these like early adopters, innovators, and laggards. And they believe, oh, there are thousands of companies who are our potential customers. But to be frank, on average, it's only about 2.5% are innovators. And so what, what does it mean? It means that you will have to make like empty meetings to get one customer, one, in, one innovator adopted into your, uh, into your offer. So the mistake is they try to approach 10 customers, potential customers who are not early adopters at all, who are like very traditional, like stone age companies. Oh, they didn't get interested in our solution. Eh, you know, pre-sale doesn't work. That's, that's not how it should be done. Yeah, that's, that, that's really resonates a lot because, you know, some people, they think, you know, when they prepare, especially for their pitch decks, they do the TAM and they forget to do the other ones, the SAM and SAMs, <laughs> right? So they, they, they look at the TAM and let's say the TAM is, I'm just throwing a number, like it's $10 yeah. billion. $10 billion. Actually, if they, if they just take the time to do the other two, the SAM and the SOM, because at the end of the day, I think that it reaches the summit, it would be like around like maybe two or three percent from the town, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, something like that. 
Yeah, so so if, if they told you about the sum, let's say, and they say, okay, we're going to add with these, and you got to take 10% of this one, it makes sense. But yeah, I see also the same thing. People are very ambitious, especially new uh, first-time founders. They are so excited, um, <laughs> which I can, you know, I can understand. Like, um, you know, if you ask me 20 years back, you know, I used to have ideas. I didn't start any startup, but yeah, I'll say, yeah, hey, I'm doing this thing that no one else saw. <laughs> so to your point, Donatus, like you mentioned something, which also I think it's interesting uh, because you, you talked about having a parallel development between from software perspective, coding and blah, blah, blah. And something related to the customs, building the customs. And I'm sure here, and you come from a marketing background. So how they should prioritize the marketing and how they should, I would say, customize the messaging also as well while doing this double split because it's part of the double split. Yeah, that's a broad question, but I try to answer it. So as in the way I can answer it. Sure. So the main thing is not just to focus on tiny details of your product, how it's going to look like at the very end, but try to focus on the value that you will create. It's not about how you will create that value for customer, but what problem you will solve for the customer and what value you will deliver. This is the very first step in marketing that you go and do. And, and you do on secondary analysis. Well, makes sense. Nobody does in the market and they believe that we could do. Now I go to people and talk with them. And if they say, yeah, this is amazing. Keep me in the loop. Let me know. Cool. You already started not only marketing, but already your sales process because they people, these people are waiting for, you, for your message. And the whole marketing message has to be crafted not about the product, not about the features, not about the functionality, but about the value that you deliver. Even in B2B, and I would even say especially in B2B, because in B2B, we have less emotions and more rational. Okay, I pay you 10K a year, so what do I get? Can I get 20K? Okay, but that's not a tremendous value, it's just 2X. So when we build software and when we try to sell it to someone else, I always ask, What's your 10x result? If you want to charge 10K, so we have to create value for 100K. This is what we try to, 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 to seek to achieve. If we hit only 50K result for the customer, it's still five times more than customer invested. And probably you feel that it's much easier to sell five times higher value than we are asking to charge for it. That's, that's when we start our, our, our marketing. Another thing is uh, crucial. Uh, discovery interviews where you try to dig deeper into specific wording of your customers. How do they talk about that specific problem? What words do they use? What keywords? Uh, what's their main challenge? And that's why I don't count just on secondary data. I always want to go and to speak with customers, potential customers. Once I get their message, then I go and test it via different channels. We use, let's say, social media, Facebook or LinkedIn. Uh, we use paid ads. We test like three to five different marketing messages, but these messages are built based on what I've heard from people, how they, uh, how they define the problem, how they define the result that they want to get. And I throw at the audience, put some cash uh, for, for Meta or for LinkedIn and see what are numbers. And based on that, we can talk, cool. Now our customer acquisition costs on average are this much. We will keep our customer, let's say for three months, for a year, for whatever it is, and we charge this much. So our customer lifetime value is this much. Cool. If we are profitable, if we are not profitable, we can't go at scale because we are just, we are just going to burn our money. So we need to find the uh, minimal profitable channel to sell, to sell our first product. And only then we should think about, okay, how to scale, how to add more, more gas into that, you know, burning fire. Right. Um, and one thing, you know, if you allow me Doritas, to, to, to add also, and this is applies not only from the marketing, maybe even when they try to pitch to investors. So they need, because, you know, I love reading books about startups and, you know, get, and this is why I'm interviewing you also. And one thing that always comes up is the customer journey, like describe the customer journey, like you're taking him or her from, from this point, right? He's he or she is here. And now you are taking them to, to, to there, like, and, you know, describing this, 
And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just reading this book by Tony Fadel, the, the Build, you know, it's, it's amazing. He describes, you know, this customer journey thing and he compares himself when he was younger and he was just wanted to build shiny hardware products. And then he started to understand, you know, the concept of customer journey. And, you know, the guy came up with the iPod, iPhone, and then the Nest. So I advise everyone to go and read this book. It's very, very um, nice. Now, speaking about, uh, you know, funding and investment a little bit here, Jonathan, how do you advise startups to approach investor conversations, especially if they are in the early stages? No, the best investor is your customer. <laughs> like, uh, I, I had like the double sprint audit last week with one potential customer and I hope that he will enroll in our program. And when we discussed with him, I asked, okay, why not go to your potential customers and offer them becoming your investor? Because I, I don't want to give away any specific details because it still might be kind of like a confidential, but the key idea was that, well, you can become like an early adopter of that platform. So you could get some benefits for your own business. But if you become an investor of that platform, you would earn even from your competitor's profit because you are serving your competitors as well. So for you, it doesn't mean much if the customer comes to your business or to your competitor's business, you earn some cash out of that. If you become an investor in that tool that serves the market. But the rule of thumb is that I don't advise going to investors until you have traction because, well, it, it will be based just on ideas and the whole, you know, fundraising process will be built just based on emotions and personal connection. But imagine the situation when you come to investors and say that we have like five customers who already paid us at least 1K each or 10K each, well, it depends on solution on what we are trying to build. And we have the waiting list of in a, 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 this, this number of potential customers willing in that solution. And now we are looking for X amount to build this MVP to ship it out. We don't need more. We need just this amount to ship it out. And once we ship it out, we are very confident that out of 120 customers on the waiting list, at least 20 or 15 will take the offer and we, we can even return your investment back. So literally I show you that I don't need your investment so much because I could sell fund from customer development. This is the ideal case scenario, what we are looking for. Because if you can't get to that stage that customers are willing to wait for your product to give you some kind of like commitment, it gives me a strong doubt if I'm building the right thing. And as you mentioned, like customer journey, if you showed like how, how the customer journey will look like with your product, it has to be so much different so that customer says, okay, uh, take my money like um, a deposit. Or maybe it's like refundable deposit, maybe not refundable deposit, but I want to, you know, stay in the loop and, and know when the product is ready for testing. That, that's, what we, that's what we want to have before going, talking to any investors. And you actually can achieve that without any major investment. Today's tools like no-code, low-code, wireframing approach with software and platform solutions, this is, this is doable. Come on, this, this happens every day. And I can tell that I'm doing it also myself without paying large amounts. I don't have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to, okay, I'm a technical, I have a technical background. If I want to code, maybe I can learn easily, but yeah, like I'm, I have a couple of ideas and the way I'm doing it, I don't have to, to pay hundred K. So I'm just using low code, no code tools. And I'm just throwing in front of some friends and, you know, like people who I know and say to do the validation and it's, it was going very smoothly and you know like the beauty of these things you can change also very fast so you're fan donatas i believe you know this is my feeling you're you're a fan of bootstrapping a business you know unless you are onto something big and really you need like big fund and then you go to 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 gather these big amounts and bring these big checks right yep yep exactly you need to put yourself on the right trajectory and like fundraising and, and investment from investors is extra fuel that speed up your process. Put yourself on the right track at the very beginning. Investors won't do that for you because most investors are portfolio investors. They invest in 10, 20 startups. And if one or two of them, you know, shoots to the sky, that's a good result for them. They get their money back, but they don't care about the rest 19 or 18 startups. And what are chances that where you will end up? So you need to 
put yourself on the right track and use the investment as the fuel, as the catalyst for scaling up. Right. So how, you know, this is like maybe again, a generic question, but because you are in, in the heart of, of the startup world, I would say the right of course, I'm sure that you, um, you deal with a lot of them on, on daily basis. So what are the trends that you are seeing and how, you know, what kind of maybe new generation SaaS we might be seeing in, in the near future? Because you, I know that you focus more on SaaS businesses. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a very general question, but what I see that um, quite many founders are trying to capitalize on new opportunities with AI and, and connections, automations to avoid like coding every single line of code on themselves. They pro let's try to assemble multiple tools into one thing, deliver that, that value. And after that, we can create something maybe out from scratch that will have unique code and et cetera. So I, I see very, very many founders trying to, to look how to optimize the delivery process of the product, not necessarily testing it in the market in the first place, but it's not the old school approach. Like, okay, I'm coding from, from, you know, from the beginning. So what we're going to see in the future, it will be like more, uh, software, more platforms that will be built on low code, no code and with AI generated codes. That's definitely, we will see more integrations via webhooks, uh, APIs, so that like your solution, if it's just a standalone solution, which speaks to none of other uh, solutions in, in the market, now it, it becomes obsolete. You need to integrate your solution with other softwares, with other platforms in the market. And how are you going to do that? This might be your competitive advantage again. And I see businesses thinking about how to do that. Another Another trend, what I see is like, um, could be called a piggyback uh, strategy when you try to build the solution on somebody else's audience already and introduce it. Like, for instance, you're using this tool, which has, you know, millions of users all over the world. And maybe this tool has its own internal marketplace or app store or whatever it is you build specific app or solving specific problem, fine tuning something, and you can capitalize really nice on that. And the main idea of it, I mean, the main goal is not necessary to build a, a self-sustainable and scalable business, but successful exit. You created this tool, which is based like, like Microsoft on one or two features, by the way, Microsoft, I believe mm -hmm. will be booming, like solving one or two specific issues and that's it. And, and they don't need to raise, you know, huge amounts of capital for that. And they, they are built really fast and you can exit really quickly after that. Successfully profitable to that. So these are like general friends that I notice on, on a daily basis when, when I talk to founders. Yeah. On, on that last one, I always, but, uh, warn, you know, uh, people who come to me with ideas, fine, but put this part of your risk strategy, because I like risk i i work in uh, in uh, cyber security domain and you know uh, uh, data privacy and all this so so risk is always something on on top of my mind i say make sure when you build on top of another platform that this platform will not be holding your destiny or you have a plan b when when this platform decides to do something and we saw recently a lot of examples when uh, now x previously twitter they they changed their api for example yeah. It happened with Reddit as well. It happened many times. And, you know, like you are under the mercy of, you know, this platform. And if one day, actually, you know, the Apple Store story, you know, back, I think, 2011, 2012, when they decided they would reject some of the apps built on these no-code, low-code, no-code yeah. tools. And it, it caused, you know, some, some people to go out of business. So always, you know, what I advise, keep this risk. Okay, maybe you're going to make some money, but think about, the future so this is something you know yeah it, it shouldn't be your retirement plan <laughs> Next. exactly so have the plan b and as Dorothea said don't make it your retirement plan um Dorothea's like as we come to an end uh I, I tried to cover as much as possible but is there anything specific that you wish that i have asked or you want to to you know talk about um i don't have any specific questions i i'm the person who answers specific questions from founders, because every SaaS, every platform 
uh, is is at least slightly different. They have slightly different challenges. Yeah, they have general topics like key five hypothesis that needs to be validated. That's cool. But when they try to do that, they come to more specific challenges. At least what would I suggest if someone is interested in the double sprint method, they can go for the double sprint method.com and check the video. It's about half, half an hour length, like 30 minutes explaining the whole method, absolutely free of charge. That's, that's it. And you can download the PDF of that, um, of that like double sprint method diagram, and you could diagnose the situation. Maybe you can diagnose the situation on your own, like to check each of these steps. Have you done this, 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 or did you miss this or that specific question? That's, that's it. See, and if you would like to connect for more detailed feedback, you could join Facebook group. Again, absolutely free of charge founders launching SaaS on Facebook. And we can communicate there. I also share daily tips there. And if you have any questions, you can post your questions in Founders Launching SaaS Facebook group. And we could answer these questions there. That's great. Thank you very much, Donatas. I will make sure that I will put these links in the episode description. Um, thank you very much, Donatas. Like um, a lot of advice, a lot of information, and a lot of knowledge shared by you today. So I really appreciate that. And as you mentioned, like if someone wants to connect, so I will put all these links uh, so you can go and, uh, and still, I think you, the Udemy code is still there, right? So they can also yeah, go yeah, and yeah, check yeah. it. It's, it's yeah. yeah. So, so you can also go check the, the course of uh, Donatus on Udemy as well. And uh, as usual, this is the way I end my episode. Guys, keep the feedback coming. I love feedbacks because I see this, uh, this, um, podcast as a startup <laughs> so awesome. keep the feedback coming um, you know tell me what you are liking what you are not liking anything any special topic you want me to focus more on and although like everyone is happy now with the mix that we have so I'm, I'm really glad to see your feedback and if you are interested to be also a guest don't be shy reach out if you have a story to share if you have you are a startup founder yourself and you want to share something with us so we can discuss this also as well this is a way where you can share uh, with, with the audience. And, you know, as I say always, uh, hope that I'm adding some value to you. And if you're liking my work, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for that. And we will meet again in a episode very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hit that subscribe button. Share the show with your tech-savvy friends and fellow entrepreneurs. And leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Your support means the world to us.